This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Steve, how would you talk us in today? This is this is your turn. Let's, let's get to you. <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise. So today we are talking about propaganda techniques, and we have a grab bag full of them. There's many, many propaganda techniques, and so we won't be able to cover all of them, but we will cover some of our favorite, and we will make a list to that, link to that on the page here so you can see the full list, which is from Wikipedia. But we're just going to kind of go into more depth, have conversations about what we see going on in the world and how they are used. Yeah, and we are not super qualified in this. I've read a bunch of poli-sci books, but like, <laughs> it's such a deep field that it's hard to really get a toehold there. But yeah, propaganda actually is an interesting thing because it's universally regarded as bad, right? Right. It does have a connotation that you were manipulating someone. Right. Sorry, I should say universally regarded as bad in North America and maybe in the West in general, because in China, they use the word and it had no real connotation to it. Apparently, it just was like a neutral word, like marketing, for example. Right. So there would be like the Ministry of Propaganda and it's like not even a bad thing. It's just like, oh, of course. Yeah, basically. Do you want to define propaganda? Do you have a definition in front of you? A number of techniques based on social No, psychological. you can't read that. <laughs> That's the list of propaganda. <laughs> okay, so like the actual, we're just going by the Wikipedia page because it's going to be generally accepted. Propaganda is communication that is primarily used to influence or persuade an audience to further an agenda, which may not be objective, I guess not. What do they mean by that? Hmm. Journalistic objectivity. Okay, so may not be an objective fact, like this is red, for example, and may be selectively presenting facts to encourage a particular synthesis or perception or using loaded language to produce an emotional rather than a uh, rational response to the information that's being presented. So essentially, it seems like mass manipulation or like a form of marketing, honestly. The only way I can see this is different from marketing is that it tends to be just basically marketing for politics, I think. Marketing for ideas. Because marketing always has a goal. The agenda is for you to feel better about the products that you end up buying. Whereas a politician will be trying to get you to think about certain problems and place them at the feet at their particular political enemies so that you take a similar action and buy them. So you vote for them. So honestly, it just seems like political, politics-based marketing. What do you think? I think that's a nice definition. It fits into the realm more of manipulation, I would say, than I guess it's persuasion as well. But it would be more on the manipulative end of the spectrum, I would argue, because there is such an agenda, an ulterior hidden motive involved in this type of thing versus, I guess, persuasion when we want to talk about it in, I guess, counseling techniques. Like if you listen to the episode on motivational interviewing, it's going to be very different than propaganda. Both are looking at how to persuade someone, like counseling techniques is persuading someone to change their life for the better. But the key difference is that in persuasion, there's not that ulterior motive. There's not that agenda. And if the counselor is going into it with an agenda, like an ulterior motive, like I'm going to make this person worship me. (laughs) Well, okay. How about I'm going to make them choose this decision, which I've decided is best for them. Yeah. At the extreme end, it would be like a therapy cult, which existed in history. What? Where? In Manhattan, New York, the Sullivanians. (laughs) What? I didn't know about that at all. I mean, a lot of them essentially are like therapy because like they're a form of, 
I don't know if I call it therapy, but more like eliciting deep, dark secrets and then lording that over them so that they just can't leave, essentially. So I can see how therapy plays into it because you're like getting them to divulge, building trust quickly. Oh, for sure. And so I guess therapy cults do exist. But I would say that these techniques... I guess we've argued about the definition of propaganda earlier on when we talked to Mr. Beat, was it? I don't recall. Jog my memory, please. Yeah, so when we were talking to Mr. Beat about what was the concepts there? Historiography. Historiography. We asked him about what he thinks classifies as as propaganda because he analyzes a lot of right-wing media these days, which one could argue has bordered on propaganda or is just overt propaganda often. Well, we'll get to that when we look at the techniques. I think they'll say like, well, the left media, blah, 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 which itself was a propaganda idea planted. It's a slogan that they use. This is not just a problem with the rights. It can happen with the left. It was in the context of looking at PragerU because Mr. Beat did a whole series on analyzing PragerU. Prager, P-R-A-G-E-R. PragerU. And it's not necessarily just a left-wing position to call it a form of propaganda because under his definition, it had a real agenda associated with it rather than an openness to like, okay, let's look at the facts and figure out what's going on. It didn't have this open journalistic integrity. It was really, here's the agenda, let's prove the agenda. And that's kind of our definition back then. Yeah. And that's why I think they're talking about in that it said the goal may not have objectivity or what was it exactly they said? The further an agenda, which may not be objective. So like they're not doing the abstract, like these are the facts. You can take away your own conclusion. We think it's this. It's just this is the conclusion you must come to. Or you're stupid if you don't come to that. Yeah. Naive realism, sort of. Yeah, exactly. Naive realism, for sure. For those who forgot the episode, it's just thinking that all the information you have is the facts and anyone who disagrees with you is misinformed, stupid, or evil. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Nice, succinct definition there. And so there's a few episodes this overlaps with where we've kind of touched on these points. And so we're going to go into the specific techniques. Do you want to start with one of them? Let's see. I'm just going to go by the list and start working my way down. I might just skip the ones that I'm less familiar with, but like, for instance, ad hominem is pretty obvious. Ad hominem is just the Latin for against the person, I believe, which is just an attack like that person's ugly. So they're wrong. Like that would be an ad hominem because the argument bases solely on who is saying the argument, not the argument itself. So this can happen on any side of the political spectrum. Honestly, the right seems to use it a lot, like calling them blue haired feminists, bra burning feminists. Actually, it seems like a lot of feminist tropes are coming up, but using the person's personal traits to disqualify them. Fox have heard do it a lot. Trump did a lot in his election. He was a very good the first time around at labeling people. Yeah, just constantly being like, oh, she's stupid or no, only ugly ones or whatever. (laughs) Just all the time, he would do it constantly. He literally made up an ad hominem nickname for every person that he came across. Lion Ted, remember that? Sleepy Joe. (laughs) Yeah, Sleepy Joe, the neurologist that he actually ended up bringing on to HUD after the election. To HUD? Yeah. Okay, expand on that. <laughs> this is an example where I repeated it back and you didn't say it. What do you mean to HUD? The person that he was attacking, we called them something sleepy, whatever. I forget his name though. But he just did it with everyone. With Hillary. It, what was it called? That cruel woman or wicked woman? Crooked Hillary? No, nasty woman. That's it, yeah. Yeah, nasty woman. Crooked Hillary was the one that he slipped on her, but that's more behavior-based. It's still an attack on the person, I guess. And in that context, I guess you could argue it is a little bit valid, not his per se, not Trump specifically, I'm not defending him, but pointing out somebody's track record of being crooked would be a behavior-based argument. So while it is attacking the person, that is the product being sold, right? That person as the leader. So is that a valid form of argument? I guess it could be in that context, like we're thinking of who should lead a country. Right. But 
it's more of attacking the person rather than their ideas as well, though. Yeah. And we should also say that like propaganda isn't necessarily like just an argument. A lot of time it's actually trying to avoid rational engagement. So it will just do associations with somebody constantly pairing them with imagery that goes with it. Like Tucker Carlson will do it much of the time. All these techniques blur together because like Tucker Carlson, when somebody is brought up by somebody else, say he's not speaking and he's just listening on camera, he'll make like disgusted faces when their name comes up so that you know the audience subliminally that this is how you should feel about this. He's the guy you're all about. He's the guy you like to listen to and he's disgusted by this. So there's a negative association there. I love the Tucker Carlson resting face. Oh God, there is no such thing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you're right. He does look like just a mouth breather. (laughs) He's doing that. Like, Usually it's a face that's like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard is how I usually see it. <laughs> okay. I got to say too, like in the past on this podcast, I said that I thought Tucker Carlson might be one of the better ones there, but now, no, I am embarrassed by even saying that ever. Cause I'm like, even then he was not great, but then he's just gotten worse and worse and more and more influential as he does. So I will rescind that as much as possible and condemn him to the highest extent. So anyway, that's mine attack against the person. I guess the left is a bunch, I guess with old figures, like say old ideas falling out of favor because they came from somebody who had done transgressions that is ad hominem the idea can be perfect even if it came from an evil person if somebody came up with a genius idea that like helped people a lot or just was like a good argument then you can't just say they're wrong because it came from that mouth the argument or the idea still stands yes the idea and the person are two separate things not necessarily to close it off because here's a common one the use of calling someone like hitler Oh yeah, I think that's that's a universally used one on both sides. I guess that's an attempt at a guilt by association, even though there is no association there necessarily. X person is like Hitler. Like that's just one of the most common ad hominems, which I mean, yeah. Hitler's bad. Obviously, it's just taking the worst person you can think of and trying to associate them with that. But yeah, to summarize it, an ad hominem is just an argument against the speaker and not the things they're saying or doing necessarily. All right, so what's one you got going on? I have a few of them. Let's look at love bombing. Okay. Have you heard of love bombing before? Sort of. I couldn't give you a definition, but I think I've heard of it. Yeah. And and so it's it's one that is actually used by narcissistic individuals at the early stages of relationships. And it really kind of overlaps with a propaganda technique. And so I guess we can think of it on the narcissist level first, because it's more readily available in people's minds. Have you ever known anyone to describe the first few months of their relationship as just kind of out of this world, just they're going on trips, they're getting gifts, they're just madly in love, saying I love you within weeks or days or whatever it is. And it's just this complete, overwhelming, joyful, exciting time. And not in the way that it normally would be in an early stage of a relationship, like swept off your feet to the next level. Yeah, like the honeymoon period on steroids. Yeah, and that's called love bombing. And it's the steroid component is key because you wouldn't want to say every relationship is, is this. It's for sure a narcissistic trait to really deliberately overwhelm the person with this feeling that gets them really hooked on it. It's almost like an early big win at a casino and gambling. Always leads back to gambling with you. <laughs> Casinos don't intentionally program it to do this because they can't it has to be random unless you're in a different country that has no regulations around it apparently but a well-regulated casino it has to be random but people who get hooked into gambling have this early big win and they think 
wow, this is the best thing ever. And then they try to recreate that feeling despite the negative consequences. So just like someone in gambling who's just repeatedly losing, trying to chase that early big win, someone in a relationship, they start to see red flags and they start chasing that person to try to get that back. Because they say, it was so good. I want to get that back. That feeling, we had it. We lost it. Maybe it's my fault. So then, yeah, even if they have negative interactions, especially if you're gaslighting, another thing we're going to talk about, if you blame them for the downfall of it, then the person could think, oh no, I I messed up. I have to get back to that. So the mask starts to slip and they start like, well, this is your fault that you did this. And then they're like, oh no. And so this is, I guess, where you could see a lot of the more prevalent examples in people's minds in their own lives about how they think like women only want jerks like that stereotype because they could be in one of these cycles because narcissists like they're not that uncommon. What, what is the percentage in the population? Do you know? Oh, the estimates vary depending on who you're talking to. What is the range? Experts estimate up to 5% of people. According to Dr. Romney, it would be a lot more common than that. She may have availability bias because she is an expert on that apparently. But I mean, I don't know. She has actual research that, I mean, obviously we have to go by what she says. Maybe I'm ad hominem her there. <laughs> Not really. You're looking at a sampling bias. And so this this love bombing technique, it's like, I'm going to get that back. What we once had, maybe it's my fault. Maybe if I try harder, maybe if I do more, I'll win them over again and then we'll have that back. Now, let's convert this to cults because look at cult behavior. One of the techniques is they cut the person off from their social contacts, their family, and initially bombarding them with all of this acceptance, love, validation. And usually they get them at like a crossroad in their life where like things have all gone wrong or like they just lost significant support or some sort of transitionary period, which is also, I think, why they'd be targeting, I mean, religions do it too, why they target young adults who are just graduating from high school or college. Yes. Yeah. So if they don't have social support in the first place, they find it. They get bombarded with this sense of love and acceptance and whatever they need or cut off from their external contacts told that these people are bad we're good here's a mission so you get i guess bombarded with a sense of purpose through a mission and meaning we are the chosen people for example yeah Othering. Some cults, they go into kind of more open sexual behavior where everybody is encouraged to kind of hook up with everybody else and pair bonding is discouraged so that everyone's kind of bonding together and not just pairing off. I know the therapy cult I was referring to, the Sullivanians did this. They were highly kind of left-wing oriented cult with a lot of kind of left-wing propaganda. Most of them, like the cults that I know of are usually further left. Are there right-wing ones? I guess they're, you know, I guess they are. A lot of them, like the military could be seen as one potentially by some, I guess. I don't know. I would say more militia groups. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a better example. Or more so because the military is a well-established organization. Yeah, but I'm wondering like for cults if they're, no, they are, I guess. In religious studies, at least when I studied one course, psychology of religious experience, they defined a cult as basically a religion that it started that is usually not based, or at least just not widely accepted, but usually not based in the established religions. It's just a completely new religion starting now. Yeah, new religious movement would be kind of the sociological definition. I actually taught the sociology of religion one semester. Didn't know that. Yeah, so there's a lot of this overlaps. Yeah, so you're saying they did a lot of that, the Sullivanians? Yeah, for sure. Interesting that you brought it up. The therapy was actually probably used as a way to like, we all have secrets on each other. (laughs) Yeah, 
a lot of cult leaders usually have very intuitive abilities in that area. Some psychopaths, some serial killers. I think it was Ted Bundy that was on a suicide line and learned how to relate to women by studying what he did there and the people around him at those jobs and learning how to speak to women and gain their trust quickly. So like, yeah, like these things can obviously be weaponized. They have been. And that's kind of what propaganda is, is why I tied it to marketing. It's just capitalism isn't... When is it invented? When was capitalism invented? <laughs> it's like one guy, like an entrepreneur is like, here is capitalism. Yeah, because I mean, capitalism is a specific form of market. And Adam Smith is the one that wrote it. So 18th century, the wealth of nations, I think is when it would be associated with. It would be around the 18th century that it starts to develop early on. 1776, apparently that book came out. So it's only a couple hundred years old and we're still just, I guess now, using it in the late stage as some people call it. But I guess marketing... If you look back like 100 years, it's so quaint and underdeveloped. And then it started gaining some steam. And I would say that maybe in the mid-1950s is when it really hit its stride. And that might be related to the jump in propaganda from World War II, because both sides had to figure out how to convincingly get people on board with what they were doing. I read this one book called How to Hide an Empire. It's about the U.S., which I call Pointless Empire. And it's just because it doesn't actually own the territory, but it has military bases all around the world and thus significant control. And so it basically does function like an empire. But in that, it was talking about how... World War II, a lot of things were revolutionized by them having to figure out how to do these things. And one of the ways they did that was with Pearl Harbor. At the time, I think Hawaii wasn't really considered a part of the U.S. It wasn't really regarded as being theirs. Just like at the time, the Philippines were also equally part of the U.S., I do believe, at least a colony. And they both were attacked around the same time. But I think it was Truman was the president then. He said that he had to keep revising his speech because it included all the territories that were U.S. that were attacked. But he thought that the U.S. citizenry, the average person, wouldn't likely associate very much with the Philippines. And so he cut it from the speech and focused exclusively on the American territory of the Hawaii's, I think it was the way he phrased it, something along those lines. And that is a propaganda move because he's trying to get people to be on board with them engaging with the war. If they're like, oh, the Philippines are attacked and Americans are like, well, who cares? That's not us. But even though it is, they might not be on board. So they had to like make it closer to home. Right. Interesting. It's well intentioned. And it goes to like a positive association in a sense. Like people associate more positively with things, people, or places that are like near or like them. That are associated with them. Yeah. Part of the circle of empathy, I think it might be called. I'm interested in picking that up. But that is what conservative media often tries to do, though, is to shrink the circle of empathy. And left movements, progressive movements tend to try to expand the circle of empathy because we are trying to say, like, look, they're gay people. I'm not gay, but I support them to live the life they want to lead because that's what like a free society should do. And the other one's like, these gay people are trying to change our way of life and we need to defend it to the dying breath because if we don't, they're just going to make us all gay, which is obviously, it's not a rational argument. It's purely an emotional one. Yeah. And I guess quickly defining conservatism versus liberalism, it's in the names really. To be conservative is to want to conserve. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, like conservation of traditions and ways of being and institutions. Or nature. Yeah. I mean, you could be a conservationist. <laughs> yeah. Conservationist or conservator for art. It's just conserving. Preserving, I would say. Preserving ideas or institutions that are more traditional. Sure. It can be a good thing. It could be yeah, a bad like a hammer, for instance, can be used to build stuff or it can be used to bash skulls in. Like it's a tool that can be used, it needs to be used sometimes, but in like eliminating it entirely would be bad. Right, right. And liberal left more so associated with trying to create new ways of breaking down boundaries. And there's problems with each side because if we get rid of all traditions, it's just like, well, anything goes and we can't all communicate on the same level or if, or if we keep old traditions that are outdated, then people are excluded and the rest of it. Yeah, and especially if we include like 
say, bank structures or systems of commerce as being outdated or needing to be gone, then people, if they can't rely on the system, they do not invest in that system. Because why would you? If you think that like you're going to put a ton of time and money into building a store and establishing yourself, and then suddenly the system completely changes and it gets torn down and destroyed overnight, why would you do that? You wouldn't. So that's a problem with being too free and fast with these things as well, that we need to keep the things that work and figure out what those are and which ones are becoming defunct over time. Like we just had a giant storm here and walking around there's a bunch of trees that were torn down, but all the ones I've seen torn down are rotten in the middle. They're already dead basically. So the storm cleared out the bad stuff. So this would be like conservatives would be the trees that are still standing. They established that they were strong enough to keep it there. That storm was so liberal though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that does stumble on kind of associating progressives with a storm, but like clearing out clutter and like getting rid of bad elements is useful, not to revolutionize necessarily too liberally, or else you might destroy stuff that we actually still need or that the system needs. Yeah, the hurricane is too far left, but like a heart, a nice hearty storm is kind of yeah, moderate left. I think you need at least once or twice a year, you know, get, get those rotten elements out of there. But I also, I favor progressive. Forest fires are the function oh, yeah, too. Yeah. So forest fires need to be regularly done or else they end up yeah this is actually that's a great analogy because like society a forest needs to have a fire every once in a while to clear off the brush but if it doesn't have one for too long we keep stopping them it ends up burning so intensely that it ends up burning the entire forest down so a revolution in other words what a metaphor for the validity of both left and right political positions. And this was a side tangent, but I think it was one that was necessary because we don't want to come across as like... Well, we're going to attack the right a lot these days because the reason why is because most of the left media is still center-left. Like, it's not too far out there most of the time. And the right however, seems to have like no moderate right ones that I can think of. Your wife said to me, hey, well, like the right needs a voice. I'm like, the right has like a crazy loud speaker constantly. It's not a good one. No, exactly. It's not a good one. <laughs> yeah, no. So like that's, I think by asking me that question of like finding examples, like I can't come up with any. And I think it's because Fox ended up swallowing all those and now they're all just offspring of Fox. So it's just insane right is the only right there is. And that's why they're getting pulled towards that singularity. Yeah. And so the left has a spectrum of, although it encompasses most of the media most of the media variety i would say yeah the media variety because like fox is like a a black hole like super dense and everywhere yeah the right is like pretty much synonymous with fox in terms of mass media because it's really there's not a whole lot else to listen to and the left has many sources but there's more variety to correct you there there are other right-wing sources but they're usually more insane than fox Yes, but where is the moderate right source? Like PBS NewsHour, like I would say is moderate left. I like PBS NewsHour, but I wish there was an equivalent on the right, like a slightly moderate right PBS NewsHour to kind of balance it out. I think actually it's very useful for Fox to do that because if they want to push a specific agenda, which they do, they are effectively propaganda. The more politicized the news is, the less objective it is, and thus it is technically propaganda, which honestly... If you see someone as using fear to stimulate political change as terrorism, I would classify Fox and the further left ones, whatever they may be, as terrorist organizations personally, because like they constantly pump fear out there. More so, it seems like a right-wing tactic. Honestly, I don't hear as much fear-mongering on the left, except for of the right. Uh, no, it's both sides. In. Depends on who's in power, though. Like right now, the right has been really lathered up. When haven't they been? Like in the past, since Trump started into politics, or even like the past since 
since 95, basically. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm not that old, so I can't really talk to the earlier half of that range. But the reason I say, sorry, 96, is the Telecommunications Act of 96 is what Clinton passed, which in the past, I think I said that most of the problems of the U.S. were laid at Reagan's feet, which seemed to still be true economically. But in terms of media, which I guess has ended up affecting the economics, I would say it actually laid at the feet of Clinton. Because in 96, he passed the Telecommunications Act of 96. I think that's the act that was supposed to stop monopolization of the media. But in the end, it ended up doing the exact opposite. And that's what birthed the conglomerate that is Fox these days. So then they gained enough foothold in the U.S. And I think from there, they kept... Or he's actually... Is he Australian or British? Can't remember. But Murdoch got a real foothold in the U.S. at that point, I believe. I got to look more into that, so don't quote me on it. But it's an area that's worth looking into, I think. Anyway, I think we should probably move on to the next technique, unless you have something to say to that. It was a nice little aside. I think it's necessary when talking about this topic. Yeah. So right now in Canada, we are the first-past-the-post system. I'm talking about this because we're about to talk about bandwagoning. So first-past-the-post system is the system where essentially the person with... How would you define it? First-past-the-post. I can't think of a concise one. I think I'm going to screw it up if I do. Meaning that the candidate with the plurality of votes is the winner of the congressional seat. Losing party or parties win no representation at all. Okay, so basically there's one winner and... And whatever the ballots say, that's it. But there's other better systems. And in this system, though, it's usually going to run down to, I think, mathematically, the formula tends to lead toward two main parties. Even though there may be other parties, they end up having something called the spoiler effect, which is like, say, in Canada, there's the NDP, which is a little more left, and the Liberals, which are like center-ish, I think, if we actually look at the overall spectrum. Center-left nowadays. It depends on where we're talking about, because like in Europe, they would probably be fairly center, but compared to the politics they have there. Canada. Yeah, I know. But just depending on who's listening, people regard him as far left. But that's, how, again, the propaganda technique to make him seem more radical than he is. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of his, but it is what it is. But my point is, by having the NDP there, they actually have siphoned votes off of the liberals. Because the liberals, let's say, are center. And the NDP is center left. People who are more left leaning will vote for the one that's closest to them being the center left. And that will weaken both of them because it'll split the vote between them. Meaning that the conservatives, if there's only one, which there was for a long stretch there, they get all of the right wing votes because there's the only option really. So right now we're facing another election coming up provincially. And there are, I don't know, there it was one conservative party, but then now there's two random, even more crazy ones coming out. I really just wish there was a moderate one that came out, but it seems like it's just a shift even further right. But that will seemingly split the vote there, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. We just need some good, moderate conservatives. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. We need sanity overall. Okay, for those who are like sickened by that and think that's an oxymoron, the craziness we're seeing from the right is because we we have no moderate ones. And like having those available means that instead of all the right wing votes, like if they're center right, they're not gonna vote for a left wing person sometimes. They might vote for center, but it'll split between center and conservative. If the only conservative parties are like semi-crazy to very crazy, you're not going to get great results. <laughs> so even though it might strengthen the right, I would rather a reasonable right than a crazy right running and having the chance. And the same logic goes for the left. Yes. Yeah, so you want a variety of choices and we want a better system like ranked order voting. That's it. Rather than first past the post. Yes. Because then you could have like a variety, a buffet of ideas and you can choose the ones you like the most instead of just the ones you hate the least. So bandwagon is associated with this because you're only going to go with the ones that seem like they have an inevitable victory. So even if you like a smaller party like the NDP, you would vote for the liberals as a more strategic vote because you only get one and you only want to put it one that's not throwing it away. Right. So then people will end up 
joining in and following the crowd, even if they don't like that group or party necessarily. They just hate them the least and they're the most likely to win. So this technique can be painted in two ways. It says here, one is inevitable victory, which invites those who are not on the bandwagon to join those who are already on the road to certain victories. So we're already going to win. Like, come on, you can join still. It's not too late. Jump on in. <laughs> but or the other option is join the crowd. This technique reinforces people's natural desire to be on the winning side. So it's kind of the same thing. I don't know how these are really differentiated, but there was in the book, I think it was it's one of the Robert Cialdini books on persuasion. I think it's like getting to yes, maybe where they were trying to get people to. So again, these things can be used as good or bad. It's generally just a tool. And I know nowadays we see them mostly as bad. But in this example, they were trying to get people to stop littering. And they said, this many people throw away stuff carelessly. Don't be one of them. But by doing that, it actually apparently increased the rate of littering in that region because it made it seem like the popular thing to do. The most, oh, like everyone litters. Why would I just buy, like, I'm going to inconvenience myself? No, I'm just going to do it. So yeah. it had a bandwagon effect. Yeah. The opposite of the intended reaction. So yeah, joining the bandwagon, joining the winning side, joining those who win. People root for underdogs, but they still like to join the winning side. Even in sports, you see we won or they lost is apparently a common thing. It draws on our inherent tribalistic nature we want to be part of a group we want to belong and if you can paint your side as come on it's the warm end of the pool we're the cool kids we're going places jump on and don't get left out it really kind of makes you want to get involved and, and not consider the the nuances of the ideas the concepts the arguments and just kind of manipulate your drive to belong really I can move on to the next one. Sure. I'm choosing this one because I, I hear you complain about people using it all the time, and I know it'll get you riled up. It's called whataboutism. Oh, yeah? What is it? <laughs> it's when people don't actually engage with the argument that you are giving, but instead make a point about your side or your position. For example, let's say you are more left-wing and favored Biden, and you are arguing against Trump with someone who likes Trump. And you said, Trump is really bad because he did... Trump lies a lot. And they say, well, all politicians lie. Yeah. And so instead of engaging with that argument, like, well, let's look at the facts here. Yes or no. Did he? And when did he? Or, or whatever. It's more like, well, what about Biden? Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> though, <laughs> I mean, China, there was just constant on repeat, constantly, constantly. If I just say, like, I'm not even American, <laughs> neither of us are American. And I was there being like, that's how that works? Like, really? And they're like, well, America, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? It's like, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China is crazier, but I guess it wouldn't be appropriate there because you would know, but it's just silly because you're like, why are you bringing that up to it? Plus the other side of it is that they're confessing essentially. Okay. You hit your wife. Yeah. Well, you hit your wife. So they're not refuting the argument. They're actually kind of conceding the point by saying, well, what about them? Like I'm not, well, what about your guy? Yeah. It doesn't even defend your position. No, it just says we're all bad. It just redirects the focus of the conversation toward something different. Yeah. So you have to kind of ignore it, basically say that's not relevant right now. You were talking about you. The book about immature parents, adult children of immature parents says that like they will do that quite frequently too. It's like if we were, us as Canadians were saying, you know, the problems with the U.S. right now are these very specific things. And then an American's like, well, what about Canada? They got this thing going on right they now. They don't even have very many fighter jets. I remember somebody like mocking you as when you were teaching in the States, they <laughs> brought up our military to you and were like gripping on us for that. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Something, something about that. I forget. So yeah, we don't have to spend money on it because we got you guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, what about Canada? They don't even have fighter jets. 
Yeah, what about it? Supposing it's even true, because that's the thing, though. Like, these days, you'll hear people throw out stuff, and you're like, that is absolutely insane, and there's no way that's true. But that actually, just even addressing it at that point will just derail the entire argument. Listening to Fox, when somebody has it on in the background... When somebody unknown... I'm not going to name names, uh, has it on in the background, I'm constantly like, what the... What are they talking about? How is that related to that? What? Like, just constantly, just propaganda techniques, where it's just, if you actually engage with the literal things they're saying, which you can't if you watch it too much, because, like, then it ends up, like, you know what these different words have laden meaning there's uh, like this extra layer that most people when you just see the objective words don't have they're communicating that with their audience consistently and so when you listen you're not part of that cult you're just like what is going on that doesn't make any freaking sense like that doesn't connect at all how is that related to him (laughs) (laughs) i don't have examples in my head so i'm just going to drop it there but just it's just mind numbing and i think that's the point that in general that is the point of the people who are doing this approach to, to media and propaganda to obfuscate or just make confusing as much as possible what's actually true because then even if you are a critical thinker who's really good with media literacy you'll be confused because there's so much information out there from every angle and it all seems conflicting you can't get a bearing on reality which means that you have to just keep things as they are and keep things as they're like currently progressing and by doing that it just means that we can't pay attention to things that are actually concerning that are progressing or like the things that are broken that need to be fixed you just have no idea what's what because you have no idea what direction is up yeah and so what about ism is just (laughs) how many have we gotten through like four three three <laughs> i'm recalling a very interesting what about is that happened right after the 2016 election where the left was accusing trump of colluding with russia and the right said well what about the left's collusion with ukraine oh they been saying that recently <laughs> or back then no this was back then it's funny to think now in the context of how things have developed <laughs> yeah also especially since he's been like very strongly tied with russia like back then though like i actually remember hearing that it's like well what about hillary that he used to say back then what about the less collusion with Man, Ukraine. they're still talking like, about Hillary somehow, like the last election. I mean, I, I did go off on a huge tangent there because like it comes up a lot just hearing people confess to things like that right there. You said like they're admitting that Trump has connections with Russia. And one of the smart things about that play was they were saying he was innocent of collusion. I don't think collusion is an actual charge in legal situations or contexts. So they could easily say he was not guilty of something that doesn't exist because he couldn't be guilty of something that isn't a law. So they said he was innocent which is technically a true statement but it's also a meaningless statement like he's not an alien from outer, outer space okay well we don't know of any aliens from outer space so of course he's not that i mean that's a really poor example but you know what i mean do you have anything else you wanted to say about what about ism nope just keep a keen ear for when you're talking to someone and instead of addressing what you said they quickly redirect to what about and this could be in interpersonal relations that are not about politics. Like, I'm really frustrated that you don't ever do the dishes. Well, what about you? You never put out the garbage. You know what I mean? Like, so you can hear this in just other ways as well. Yeah, it's a fallacious argument. It uses a fallacy, but it's used very frequently. And usually it's it's more a rhetorical device to like get people on the defensive immediately. If it's an engagement, like you're going back and forth in a dialogue. Yeah, so have a keen ear. When someone tries to flip it and put you on the defensive, you're like, okay, we can talk about that after. But right now, I'm really wanting to focus on the dishes. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to be doing kitchen sinking, which is also related to that, which is just throwing in all the arguments or grievances that may have built up over time and are not related to the topic at hand. Okay, so the next one I'm going to talk about is demonizing the enemy which i mean do i even need to explain it it's pretty (laughs) obvious demonizing the enemy it sounds pretty straightforward but the enemy should be demonized because they're bad right i guess talking about earlier with the circle of empathy the enemy may be your fellow countrymen which it should never be like why would you be 
demonizing your own country. I mean, I'm not even for demonizing other countries, but like the fact that you're slicing up your own country to say, like, for example, like the Pizzagate bullshit, that was insane, where they thought that there was like this specific pizza parlor where they thought there was a basement and kids are being abducted, basically making them like do the worst possible things you can think of and saying it's their political rivals. And then a person showed up there with a gun. The place doesn't even have a basement. It doesn't make any sense. Or like that Wayfarer scandal, not even a scandal, sorry, the conspiracy theory, because they had some sort of product that was sold at a crazy rate, which may have been like a glitch or a bug, or maybe somebody like the stock was running low and they were trying to maintain the stock for whatever internal banal reasons. And it was also had like a, a girl's name. And so they said that they were not just selling this cabinet. It was selling the girl inside the cabinet. And that's why it was $65,000 or whatever the hell they put it at. Wayfair was selling a girl inside of a cabinet for $65,000? No, that's the conspiracy theory. The conspiracy I theory. never heard that one. Yeah, it's, it's in the more insane corners of the internet, Facebook probably. But they thought that because it was listed at that price, it's just a cabinet and it might have been a glitch for the pricing, but it just jumped up for a little bit, I guess. It's like a Stacy cabinet. Yeah. Like, they're selling a girl. Exactly. They're saying like, they're just not even, they're being blatant about it now. Like, they're making it seem like they're doing like the most evil things because if the, your enemy is absolute pure evil, then anything you do against them must be good. Right. Yeah. You can like do anything because this evil force like Hitler, they must be annihilated, really. Yeah. Uh, by all means, like we must do everything possible because they're going to like that's I guess it's even kind of going to Karl Popper. Karl Popper talked about the intolerance of the intolerance. Right. The intolerance of intolerance. Because like, to be absolutely tolerant means that you tolerate intolerance. And by tolerating intolerance, so like, for instance, we put up with and allow Nazi rallies or neo-Nazi, I guess now, rallies, then by doing that, they're going to use the system we're in to stop us from being able to have a free system by making the system intolerant itself through polarizing people and other propaganda techniques. So like he was arguing that, but I guess because they make it seem like the moral corruption of the other side is so insidious that without putting a stop to it, it once and for all, it will end up consuming the entire spectrum. So like the right uses this about communism, which for some reason they also think is socialism, but they're are different distinct things. And the left will do about the right saying that they're going to like be Nazis and everything. And frankly, I'm more siding with the left given how extreme the right is getting these days. There will be extreme elements at all times, but the media will represent them to sometimes unfair degrees, especially if they're trying to discredit the other side. So like Fox talking about like really small actions by small groups and making it seem like it's a really insidious thing by the left, that is done on purpose to make it seem like a greater threat to bandy people together and make them stop it. Right, yeah. And so demonizing, not good. (laughs) True, true. Demonizing is not good. What's another propaganda technique here? Divide and rule. That's what I was basically talking about with the circle of empathy by making the groups smaller and smaller. And like, I guess... In North America, it would be focusing like Fox does for white people specifically to try to get them because they're a huge demographic and they can use that large demographic like a bludgeon if they successfully capture it. That would be a divide and rule. But that's sorry, I just jumped in on yours there. Yeah, let's let's go back to kind of more psychologically based ones again. All of these are psychologically based, but this one actually comes again from the literature on narcissistic relationships. Your hobby horse, a little hobby horse of mine. <laughs> And it's called gaslighting. You might have heard it. It's becoming a popular word these days. And you wanted to use caution when talking about it because sometimes it's 
used in an overgeneralized way. Yeah, it seems like it. Like there's a movie called Mids- Midsummer or Midsummer. It's a horror movie, and they say that the boyfriend gaslights the girl all throughout it. And admittedly, he is a dick. He's like a garbage person, probably the worst person in the film. But he doesn't go out of his way to make her doubt her reality. He just basically says, "Yeah, it's fine." Like he's confused and stupid most of the time, and self-interested and not concerned with what's going on around him. But he's not making her doubt her reality. Her reality is bizarre in that movie. They're joining a cult essentially. But it became for a while just like anytime a man treated a woman badly in certain circles on the internet, it seemed like they were like, "He's gaslighting her," and it's like it's a specific thing. Do you want to define what it is? Yeah. So it is a very specific thing that is often used, but it's put simply when someone tries to deny your reality or just straight up denying reality in general. And I guess Dr. Romney does a whole kind of free workshop on this on YouTube. She's put it out last week if anyone's interested. But it's when someone contradicts something that you say that you know to be true. Like a guy will be like, you're late. You weren't here. We agreed on this time. When in your mind, you're like, no, we actually agreed on this other time. And the reality was you agreed on the other time, but they're just kind of throwing you off to make you question your perception of reality and doubt yourself. And so this fabrication of reality to make the person doubt themselves, that's kind of what gaslighting is. That makes sense? Yeah, it's getting someone to doubt the reality or their objective facts or things that they witnessed. And I mean, like leading the witness is a thing in the legal system where you're not supposed to ask leading questions like, was the man wearing a blue shirt? And it's like you can taint memories by doing that. And this is just a further, more aggressive form of that kind of questioning or statements. Trump did it with his inauguration when he said that it was the largest crowd that ever showed up kind of thing. Like that's objectively He's false. gaslighting the country, yeah. Because you look at the images and it was objectively not true. Oh, he did it all the time, and yeah. Yeah. gaslight the country by saying this was the reality. Oh, you're you're crazy if you think otherwise. You're lying. You're making it up. The word you're crazy is often used to gaslight people in relationships. Like if you have an emotion and it's valid, like you're angry or sad and you express that to someone like a narcissist, they can gaslight you by saying you're just being overly sensitive. You're crazy. Like, this is not even something that you should be upset about at all. What are you thinking? And so it contradicts your emotions as being a valid thing and you start to question yourself and say, well, maybe I am oversensitive. Maybe I'm seeing this the wrong way. And that kind of giving into self-doubt, the other person can gain power over you because if that person has power over you is certain on their reality, like this is the way it is. Like like a Trump type figure where they, they say it and it's confident. Even if they're lying, they can say it confidently. And you're kind of sitting there like, what? Did this happen? Was I supposed to be here at this time? Am I oversensitive? Did I actually do the wrong thing? Am I guilty? <laughs> you start to kind of run through all these thoughts and doubting yourself. The other person now has control and power because you have a certain person on one hand and a self-doubting person on the other hand, and you think of that dynamic. Now, put that on the national level with Trump, getting the populace to kind of doubt itself in various ways. He's presenting certainty, and it's very easy to be attracted to, well, this guy looks pretty confident. Let's go with that. Yeah, confidence is actually one of the ways to convince people. It's in psychological literature. It's called the elaboration likelihood model. If you don't have the ability, the motivation, the energy, the time to consider an argument, you'll go by what are called peripheral arguments or peripheral ways of persuasion, if I remember that correctly. So like a peripheral one might be confidence. If somebody's asserting something very confidently, then you are more likely to believe it, especially if you're busy or you just don't care enough. You're just like, okay, well, they seem very confident. I trust them. So 
So I'm going to go for that. And also on another theorist that we both like is Jonathan Haidt. I think his moral foundations theory might have something to say about that. I can't put my finger on it at the moment, but I think I remember him saying something along the lines of right-wing people being more likely to just rally behind a particular leader and just like support them no matter what. It's a strength that the right has just being like, I don't know, but I'm going to say yes for this guy because they are my guy or girl, whichever, not to be sexist. That might be an oversimplification of what he was trying to say. No, it's a broader theory for sure, but I remember, I think I remember him saying something on that that direction. I might be wrong. Jordan Peterson, as much as like he's definitely straight and some would say always bad, has, okay, can't, at least that's not ad hominem. He's had some good points occasionally. And I think one that came to mind was he was saying, if you're not intelligent, then you should be conservative, which is not to say all conservatives are not intelligent. But if you're conservative, that means you're trusting in the established system and the established traditions. And if you're not intelligent enough to figure out which way is up and how the world actually works, which is extremely complicated, let's admit, then it's your best bet is to go with the tried and true, the thing that's been there for this, I mean, generations. Like, I don't know. I can't think through the problems myself. So I have to trust the system to guide me home kind of thing. Okay. I think I'm seeing how you're connecting these things. Yeah. Tied together for me. Yeah. It's more of a faith in existing institutions is what you're saying there. That one sort of, but I'm saying like, it's just the ability to put your faith in somebody who stands for these institutions and stands for a more conservative way of thinking because then it's going to preserve things. It's not going to change things. You're not going to vote for change when you don't know if that change is good or bad. Even so you might be terrified of change if you can't understand it, right? The scary things are usually things we don't understand or are just very foreign to us. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of this in a way that it doesn't come off as super offensive to conservatives. That was, I mean, Jordan Peterson's regarded as far right by some. He's the one that said that. It's not not my words, but it does make sense. If I couldn't think through problems and you're forcing me to make a decision, I'll go with whatever the norm is, whatever the, the general trend is, because I don't know. I think that's that's the point right there. It's because being conservational conservatives, as we said before, is preserving existing institutions and those institutions are familiar and you don't want to kind of have to have cognitive dissonance to change your mind and rethink what you know as reality then yeah just go with that it's like yep this institution i know very well it's good you know the church is good whatever yeah. i know the church everyone around me church goes to the church familiar. the church has done good church. things yeah church is good yeah. bandwagon and there's nothing wrong with church per se but yeah being on a conservative position you have i guess the luxury of accepting the familiar as your ideal going forward, which is easier, I guess you can say, because the alternative, and if you go to a, a more radical left kind of perspective that says, let's just abolish it, I'm going extreme just to paint a picture here, you have to really think about what replaces it. And so there's a complexity to holding a left position, which you can't be lazy. And I guess a lot of left-wing revolutionaries more so have been often. It's like, let's just have a revolution and not proposing any kind of alternative system. I mean, many have. I think it's more recent trends. I mean, Karl Marx did. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Karl, he, he wrote many books on it, actually. Generally, education does correlate with moving more to the left, I think, because you understand how interconnected we all are. And to only focus on your own personal interests, especially today where everything is so interconnected further than it was before, either social, economic, travel, everything is even more tied. It doesn't make sense to prioritize only 
only one group's interest at the expense of other groups, because by doing so, you're ending up screwing all of us, including yourself. It's like, do you want to like destroy the planet <laughs> to get richer right now? Or do you want to like maybe continue existing while being a little bit less rich? Like, <laughs> which, which sounds like a good play. And apparently it's the first for a bunch of people for some reason. That makes sense why universities lean left, because there is a kind of a critical thinking, dismantling, reconstructing of uh, it's because of uh, systems. What's it called? Organization capture is what they've been calling it. I mean, I assume that exists in some elements, but like, again, the left is not exactly in a strong thrust. It's starting to get a groundswell now because like things are getting so expensive and unions are starting to become like less of a dirty word in like the more moderate circles. And it's becoming just untenable that the rich is continuing to get even richer. The stratification's getting worse that people are like, you know what? It's either going to be revolution or to fix it now. And honestly, especially the states for our state listeners, I, I hope that the trend continues that it pushes back and creates prosperity for the average person again, because otherwise we're facing like, I don't know, man, I, I can't see it going anywhere good on, along the current path if it doesn't reroute. Yeah. Okay, so just recap, because I think we're hitting it over an hour. I talked about ad hominems, which is attacks against the person, not their arguments. Bandwagoning, which is joining the group or joining the winning side when you either are on the other side or have decided just you're indifferent, but then you're like, oh, I got to join the group because like that's everyone's doing it kind of thing. And then I briefly touched on the demonizing the enemy, which is just making your enemy seem like the absolute worst because then anything is on the table. And then finally, I talked about divide and conquer, which is what a lot of different bad actors have been doing, trying to make it so we don't see our fellow citizens or just other other people as people we just see them as the enemy that's want to take away my way of life how about you i focused on a little bit more of the social psychological ones like love bombing and gaslighting which are common in narcissistic relationships so bombarding someone with a bunch of love cutting them off from their social ties isolating them making them chase that back you gain power from that gaslighting making them doubt themselves therefore you have power over them because you have certainty about reality and then i talked about what about isms which is not actually addressing arguments but deflecting and then putting it back on the other person well what about you so i guess it was funny because i guess the ones i was drawn to here were more just toxic relationship i mean obviously <laughs> more to do with your field i think i pay a bit more attention to poli size stuff so but yeah but we got overlap there anyway that was only probably if we try it again later we'll see whether we talk about more propaganda techniques because we maybe got through i don't know five and there's like at least 50 here i think so we might do another another version of this but for now we'll, we'll stop there because uh, we've been running long enough i think we got derailed to talk about left versus right tendencies and virtues and ways of being and trying to integrate them and yeah i knew we weren't going to get through very many <laughs> you were like can we go through the entire list I'm like no way in hell we could probably talk about one of them for an entire episode if we wanted yeah we could gaslighting uh, i'm not that interested in it but <laughs> sure. oh, it's so fascinating it's so fascinating oh thank you thanks for making me doubt my reality <laughs> <laughs> your reality is not valid it's actually really it's interesting. fascinating you're wrong all right <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. Share us with people. Rate us. Let us know how we're doing. And we'll see you next time. All right. Take care. I'm wrong. Well, what about you?